I've, I've enjoyed playing here. This has been over 20 years that I've, I've been coming to Royal Melbourne. This way golf should be played. We love coming down under. Look, it's phenomenal to play. The quality of the golf's been great, but the enthusiasm of the people's been the thing that's just been amazing. Tier of courses that I'm willing to shave my neck for in Kingston Heath Victoria. Get me out of bed to shave. Especially somewhere like Australia in the sand belt, and I have so many great memories of being down there. G'day and welcome to Australian Golf Passport. I'm your host, Scott Warren. And I'm Matt Mollica. So what is Australian Golf Passport? Well, Matty, Australia's best golf courses have always held a special fascination for those who play golf all around the world. Uh, probably in no small part because they're so far away from the rest of the world. And the likes of Royal Melbourne and Kingston Heath, New South Wales, Barnburg and others is a lifelong pilgrimage that a lot of people in the UK and the US really want to make. But it's not just those courses on the ranking list, I think, that make Australian golf something special. You know, there's the treats of Australian golf that go beyond Mackenzie's creations of the 1920s and then the recent masterpieces by Doak, Corin de Vries. Definitely. When golfers end up boarding that flight home from Australia, I think that we'll look at Newcastle, Port Ferry, Barwon Heads, Frankston and other similar courses dominating the memories of those trips to Australia just as much as the the headliner courses that prompted that bucket list trip in the first place. I suppose one of the things that we want to do in the podcast is give our listeners an idea on how they can pull an itinerary together, some heads up on under the radar courses or courses that might surprise visitors, some information on sandbelt courses and how many are too many in the one trip, how long you should allow in each location when you visit Australia for a bucket list golf trip, other little practicalities like where is King Island and how do I get there? And what's the bang for buck if I include Adelaide or Brisbane in my golf trip? Yeah, so our, our intention is to answer those questions and a lot more. And I guess take a kind of dream road trip of every golf course in Australia that we think is worth considering for a real bucket list once in a lifetime trip. Answer the questions that you have, answer the questions you might not have thought of yet. Uh, and along the way, you know, Maddie and I can't do this all on our own. So there's going to be... Some familiar names will jump on to give us their two cents. Um, it's an Australian golf podcast, so Clates will probably make an appearance at some point. Uh, and we'll talk to some travellers from afar, from the UK and the US and elsewhere, who reflect on their golf trips to Australia. And I'd love to, to chat to some people who are still thinking about a golf trip to Australia and, and answer some of the questions they might have about making the, the long journey down here. So in essence, it's really an Australian golf podcast about Australian golf courses. No Saudi chat, no FedEx Cup updates, no equipment reviews, no technology debate, and no betting agency-sponsored tipping segments. Just the how, what, when, and where of playing golf in Australia, with an occasional sacred cow sacrificed in the name of frank discussion, and some lessons learned from the mistakes we've made along the way, so that when you visit our shores, you don't have to. Yeah, I think that's that's a good summary, Matty, of what we're what we're trying to achieve, whether it's what we... To achieve, I've got a track record of going off topic, so we'll probably go through some unplanned stops on the way, but I'm really excited about, about doing it with you. Um, we've, been, we've been talking about this for a very long time. Uh, I remember it was about two weeks before we realised COVID wasn't staying in China. Um, you and I were playing, playing together at the Renaissance Cup down at uh, the National in Victoria, and, you know, you were talking about, I remember at the time, we the way in was... You know, you were saying if you ever did a golf podcast, you wanted 
the uh, the you know if you're fond of sand dunes and salty air to be the theme. Um, and I guess it shows how naive we were about doing a podcast because we thought that we would just be able to use that for free and it would all be fair game. But um, yeah, we're learning a lot even before we start to record. And yeah, I mean, if we've talked about this through COVID a lot, and I think if talking about doing a podcast was the same as doing a podcast, this would be episode 100 instead of episode one. But we finally are recording. So this is episode one. I've known you for a long time, Maddie, about 10 years, a little bit, 10 years and change. But one thing I don't know is how you got down this rabbit hole in the first place of golf architecture. A few different factors drove it. I think it probably stems back to living so close to so many good courses, having all that that great golf on the sand belt right on your doorstep. They held a, a revered place in your mind and, and the minds of all golfers. That's where great players played and big tournaments were held. You saw them on TV. You were, you were told that all of these wonderful courses were really special. As time unfolded and I spent more time playing golf, I got to walk those fairways and visit those courses and fell in love with them more and more and the passion for them grew. And then that sort of led on to going to see other courses in other countries as well and see what else was out there. How about you, Scott? What sort of lit the flame for you in terms of your love of golf architecture and travel? Yeah, it's a good it's a good question. I So I was lucky enough, to play I played at New South Wales which is obviously you know that's the great course in Sydney a couple of times as a kid and even then you know there was this kind of acknowledgement oh there's something different about that place Uh, but it really wasn't until so when I was 25 um, 2008 my then girlfriend now wife and I moved to the UK for a couple of years uh, as you do as an Australian in your 20s I remember the day we we were packing to leave and I brought my golf clubs downstairs and she she kind of said, oh, you're going to take your clubs. And so I was I was a golfer then, but I wasn't, you know, a golfer. Um, and so, you know, it wasn't just assumed that my golf clubs would be coming with us on the trip. But I said to her, remember it's kind of become famous in our family now, that I said, oh, look, I'll probably just play once a month in summer. But, you know, I can take them for free, so I may as well. Uh, and we got to the UK and I got my eyes opened up. And in the two years we were there, I proceeded to play 59 different courses in nine countries, which um, I was doing some mental maths earlier, and that roughly translates to a new course every 12 days for two years. Um, so I just got completely, you know, wowed on Lynx Golf and Heathland Golf in London. Um, some, you know, really generous people made it possible to go and play some incredible places. Uh, and I just saw that, you know, this was this was magic. And that as you travelled around as well, you know, even between England and Scotland. But then when I went and played in France, you know, the culture of golf is different in different places. And the game, you know, it's 18 holes with 14 clubs, but the way the whole game operates and the things that are important about it are different. You know, the obsession with dogs on the golf course in the UK and then the obsession with gambling in the US. And the game is very different when you travel. And I think that's one of the things that makes it, you know, fun to go and chase out different experiences around the world. So that was, yeah, that was really for me. I, after that experience, I could never go back to the golf role I was before. It's a, it's a good point about the flavor of golf being different in different countries. And, and lots of people comment on that after a visit to Sydney and Melbourne and Tasmania, they, they see those differences and enjoy the different taste of golf here as opposed to what they experience at home. I'd spent a little bit of time in the UK in years gone by in a, in a, on golf trips 
um, not as much as you, didn't see as many courses as you. I remember the first trip that I took, I probably went chasing open venues and playing big ticket courses, see where all those great tournaments were played and, and ended up bypassing a lot of wonderful courses that I look back on now and think, gee, I really should have gone there. I should have played there. I'm ashamed to say that I haven't been to North Berwick and haven't been to Ely. And um, I think that experience of having conducted a golf trip overseas in that way, while it had some positives, seeing places like the old course and Carnoustie and other courses, um, I look and think, gee, I should have done this a bit differently and and perhaps that experience might help me to guide some visitors to Australia that come down here with their clubs at a later time. They'd listen to this and think, oh, I won't make that mistake or I might benefit from some of the some of the words that they hear you and I share in subsequent episodes, Scott. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. That's, um, for me, some of the real special stuff about about Australian golf is, is the courses that aren't on the rankings list. So definitely keen to get into that. You know, thinking about that, that trip of mine and coming back from that, Matty, that's actually how we we originally met. Um, that was when I joined the Golf Australia magazine rankings panel um, and Matthew Mollica from Melbourne was one of the long-established panellists on that. And uh, you were kind enough to host me down on the Sandbelt on my first ever trip to the Sandbelt. Um, I'd seen golf in 10 countries before I'd seen golf in Melbourne. It's been a little while. And I was thinking today about, you know, why did it take us so long to to actually make this podcast, you know, get recorded. And it's, you know, tried to wash like the two years of COVID from my mind. But, you know, I think for a long time it felt in Australia at least, you know, we obviously had some highly publicised around the world, extended lockdowns and some pretty serious restrictions. And I think for a long time it kind of just felt to me like, oh, maybe maybe we'll never travel for golf again. Maybe we'll never travel again. Like maybe this, this pandemic's with us long term and, you know, I'm not going to see Royal Melbourne again, let alone Royal St. Paul's. Um, Definitely then, felt like that to us in Melbourne. With with all of the with all the times we were kept within five kilometres of our homes, and I can still remember being allowed to go out and play golf, but the drinking fountains were cordoned off, and you wore a mask while you were playing outside, which seems ludicrous in retrospect. But anyway, um, but then this summer, like that, for me was this northern summer. All of a sudden, my Instagram feed was full of my mates from Sydney and Melbourne and they were at Royal Dornick and they were at Crail and Ely and they were spectating at the Open. And it made me realise, you know, ironically, because I actually was on a golf trip to the States in April, but somehow seeing everybody else out living again made me realise that, okay, you know, it's over and life is going to get back to something closely resembling normal and you know this is the time you know it's winter here in Australia now but soon enough it's going to be November and the weather's going to be perfect and people are going to be getting on planes in you know LA and London to come down here and play golf um and yeah it's the right time yeah that really triggered us to get on our bikes and start recording and devoting more effort to the podcast didn't it you could see you could see people were traveling with their clubs and golf was back for a time it seemed like barn Boogle was a million miles away and um he'd never get there again and almost in the blink of an eye your instagram feeds full of people playing lost farm one day and barn Boogle dunes the next and i thought okay we've got to got to commit to this project scott so it's great that we are recording and and getting all these thoughts and 
episodes down. Yeah. So I, um, as I mentioned, I had a I had a trip to the US in April that I was actually meant to go on in in April 2020 to go to the Masters. Uh, then I was meant to go in April 2021 to go to the Masters. Obviously, none of those things, neither of those things happened. And this year, you know, the world was reopening. You know, my wife said to me that you know I was still a bit hesitant about traveling, and she said, "Look, if the last two years has taught us anything at all, it's that nothing is promised in the future." And if this is important to you and going to the Masters have been on the top of my bucket list since I was 14 years old, she said, if, you, if it's important to you, you got to do it now. So I did this trip, um, took two weeks, a um, lot of golf played, went and saw two days of the tournament. And Pinehurst was one of the places that was really central to, you know, my trip and I wanted to see it and I wanted to see it for a very long time. But when I started asking around for advice from people who know the area about what should I play, you know, I've got limited days. You know, Mid Pines is great. Pine Needles is great. And Pinehurst Number 4 is great. And Tobacco Road's great. And everything's great. And it is. But when you've got limited time somewhere, it's not enough for that to be the case. And you don't want to move on and find out there was this incredible place that was exactly what you were looking for and you just didn't know about it at the time. So I think one of the tough things is, and I think golf architecture a little bit suffers from a lack of critique everything's wonderful and everything's special and and i think what you really need when you when you're planning a trip or when you're trying to get some advice is you know telling someone where they should play sort of necessitates telling them where they shouldn't play and that's not because that place isn't good um it's because it may not be exactly what they're after or it might not be different enough to what they play at home or you know that for me was you know I was thinking I wish that there was I wish that there was Australian golf passport for the Carolinas because I could really use some thinning of the herd um so definitely that that kind of focused me on prioritizing the things that were important um and obviously America makes it much simpler because you can't get on half the courses anyway so you know you can you can narrow some down by virtue of access. Uh, which That's obviously... one of the great things that visitors to Australia for, for a golf trip will realise that there's there's really high calibre courses at that top end that they are able to access. There's overseas visitors, unaccompanied guests. The game is definitely different here in comparison to the US. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And, and all the better for it, you know, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, much more the way that that the game was conceived in the UK. And for me, yeah, like that's getting on to see something that's special. That's that's fantastic. But if there was the best golf course in the world was in, you know, North Carolina, but it was identical to my home course, there's going to be something that's lost for me in going and seeing that because, you know, just like any regular travel, you know, I travel for golf to see different things and to have different experiences. There's a reason probably that going to Italy or Germany feels more exotic than going to the UK or America because there's a different language and the culture is a bit more different. For me, that's like, you know, I play in Sydney on a, on a clifftop golf course. If I went to Scotland, if I went to Ireland and played old head, you know, I would certainly be disappointed in large part because I wasn't seeing variety. Um, and that's one thing I've really always chased out on my trips and what I hope we can show people when they come to Australia is, you know, that great difference 
um, a course that's not like what they're used to. Um, pick the courses that really across their trip, there's variety in the courses that they play. You know, I'm for a long time, I thought a lot of people who come to Australia play too much sandbelt golf and then miss out on some courses on the Mornington Peninsula, perhaps, or going down and playing Barwon Heads or 13th Beach. I think you can play too much of the same thing uh, on the sandbelt. And, you know, I was thinking about that. So on this trip that I took in April, um, I travelled with for a little bit of that trip with a mate of mine who's so he's 71 years old. He's lived in Greenville, South Carolina his whole life. And at one point, <clears throat> we're down in Charleston playing golf. And I said to him, oh, it's, it's such a shame that, you know, there wasn't time on my trip for me to come up and see Greenville. And he said to me, yeah, no, no, don't, it's okay. And I was kind of taken aback. He's lived there, you know, for a 70, 70 years of his life. And I said, oh, well, what do you mean? Like, is it not that, it's not that good? He said, oh, no, no, no. He said, it's one of the best places in America to live but there's absolutely no reason for you to visit. And I thought, yeah, like that's, I can see, I can see that a place could, could be that, um, you know, where I grew up just outside of Sydney probably ticks that box. And I was thinking that some golf courses are a great place to live, but absolutely no reason to visit. Um, and, and for me, like it's, it's, it's a lovely place, but for me, Metropolitan Golf Club in Melbourne is, the Greenville, South Carolina of Aussie golf. Um, I think that it would be a wonderful place to be a member. It's a great course. Um, but, you know, when, you, when you've when you got limited days on the sand belt and you've got Royal Melbourne West, Royal Melbourne East, Kingston Heath, Peninsula, Kingswood North, Victoria, for my, you know, for my time and my money, I think, you know, there's a reason people go to Metro, Matty, and they rave after the round about the bunker edging. You know, the green is cut all the way to the edge of the bunker. And it's like, yeah, that's cool. But, you know, people play Royal Melbourne and they rave about the land and the bunkering and the intricate greens and they play Kingston Heath and they rave about how you could get a course that good out of that little land and how well that course uses a little bit of undulation and makes it feel like a lot more than it is. You know, they talk about the scale, like they're raving about significant things when it comes to traveling to see golf courses uh metro cuts their greens to the edge of the bunkers that's great you know that's like you know liam hemsworth's a really good actor and he's a really good looking bloke but he's not thor he's not chris hemsworth you know like it's not to say that that metro's you know substandard or whatever i love it i, I it's a reciprocal of mine um, until now, I've been welcome to go there when I get down to Melbourne. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure you will be in future. I'm not sure that I will be, but no, it's it's. I love to go out to Metro and have a game of golf, and it's really pleasant. And you know, I think to my earlier point, I even feel nervous about about saying that and being critical because I think people in golf can be a little bit sensitive about criticism. Um, and I I hope that. You know, you and I, as we go through this process of this podcast, we'll be brave enough to call a spade a spade where we think something's maybe not, you know, worth someone flying 15,000 kilometres and spending a lot of their time and a lot of their money to see. Um, so, yeah. I think we have to be, really. I mean, one of the reasons we love Doke's Confidential Guide in its original form was that it didn't pull punches and it called a spade a spade. And if you had practicalities 
pertaining to a trip and you, you were only in a, an area for a finite time, you were, you were under no illusion as to which course he thought you should visit and which course you might bypass. And every, every golf visitor to, to Australia is going to have to make decisions like that how much time they spend in particular spots, which courses they see, which courses they don't. Um, I'd, I'd instructed people in times past that they were better off to spend their trip on the Mornington Peninsula, Sandbelt, go to Tassie and sort of feel a tiny bit guilty about not steering them in the direction of King Island because they've gone back to the States and they've not seen Cape Wickham. But how much golf were they going to fit into this trip? Like they, they weren't here forever and something had to, something had to give. So I think what's tricky too about people coming to Australia, particularly if they're traveling with a non-golfing spouse, is that the places that I would recommend people go if they were coming to Australia without golf clubs is basically the opposite of where I would recommend they go if they're coming here specifically to play golf. You know, like I think it's not there's not a lot of shared ground in that Venn diagram is there. No. Um, like North Queensland is incredible. The Barrier Reef and the Outback are incredible. Not for golf, though. And no. really, like, Sydney is to non-golf travel what the sand belt is to golf. But if you come to Sydney and you're on a golf trip, there's every chance you'll play one or two courses and then get out of there. One of the things I'd like to do is a sort of... Um, minor element of some of the episodes is talk about what a non-golfing spouse or partner travel companion does on a trip like this. And I think it'll probably take us to areas down the coast, um, down the shipwreck coast, down near the 12 apostles in Victoria, um, other parts of Tasmania that are a little bit away from Barnboogle dunes. Cause that, that is something to consider for some people if they're having a family holiday and they want to tick a few boxes and see some golf courses, but they're not all of their time is, dedicated to teeing it up um there's lots there's lots to see down here absolutely and i think that says a lot of stuff that i don't matter your thoughts on this but the old the old get a rankings list and and list the courses in the area you're going to and just play those i think that's that's folly right coming to australia yeah definitely like like me missing brora and cruden bay and sink ports and the list goes on um yeah if if you just used a magazine list to say, well, I'm going to pick off all these top 10 courses and then I'll go home and I'll have played 180 holes in the time I was there, you, you'd really miss some wonderful courses in your travels and you'd be depriving yourself of great experiences on, on some under-the-radar courses and, and, and a great taste of Australian golf. And that's, that's across New South Wales, Victoria, Tassie, elsewhere. Newcastle fits into that description. The little nine-holer at Frankston fits into that description perfectly. I don't know how many visitors from other parts of the world managed to tee it up at Ratho, for example, mm-hmm. uh, in, in the in the central Tasmanian highlands on that little course that sort of sits on a an agricultural property near the Clyde River. But I can imagine some UK and some US visitors would absolutely rave about their time if they were to go to Bothwell and see Ratho and go to a distillery as they drove their way through from Launceston to Hobart. And that's that's never going to be anything that people see on a top ten list. So, no, and I think that drive's probably going to become even more popular in a couple of years when Seven Mile Beach opens, um, which is obviously Mike Clayton and Mike DeVries' new course just outside of Hobart. You know, I think a lot of people who who've been going to Barnboogle are you know 
into Launceston, see Barn Boogle, fly back out. Um, I think Seven Mile Beach is going to make that drive from, you know, north to south through Tasmania a lot more common for the golf traveller. I think that's, you know, Rathos, I mean, it's essentially, you know, is it the Musselboro Old Course that people go and play hickories inside the racetrack in Scotland? Rathos kind of our, our Musselboro Old. It's, it's a bit of a relic and a throwback, but certainly very different if we're looking at variety for people who are coming to play golf. Certainly very different to anything else you're going to play when you're in Australia. Definitely. And conversely, you were talking about trying to get an Australian feel and and, and not build a trip on on rankings lists. Um, if I mean, if you were in Sydney and you were going to build a trip just on what's ranked one through ten, you'd, some magazines would have you going to the Australian to go and play eighteen holes, and it's not it's not really representative of a lot of Australian golf, ironically, despite the club's name and its and its its history and its longevity. Um, I've not been there a lot and I'm, I'm, I might not go there again after having said this. Um, but that, it, it's not, it's, it's a, it's a Nicholas course and it's, it doesn't feel Australian visitors to Australia could complete around there and think that they're in Tampa more than they're in the Southern hemisphere. Um, so yeah, that's, that's one of the follies in terms of building a, a trip to this country to go and tee it up here, there and everywhere and, and, just building it purely on what you read within the pages of, of the top 100. Matty, I think Catalogs. it would actually be a lot less egregious that that golf course is what it is if it wasn't called the Australian. Like it's the course that's named after the country and it's possibly the least Australian golf course in Australia. It's remarkable that, you know, that name and that golf course can go together. It's less Australian than Greg Norman and that's saying a lot. Yeah, it, it is. It is. Um, Clates has spoken about it in years past before it was changed in the 70s. Mackenzie visited there during his trip to Australia in the 1920s. The photos of it, we should we should put one or two up on the Instagram feed, actually, of, of those those um, mid-1900s photos of the, of the site at Kensington. So the Australian, for those who don't know and those who haven't visited our country before, it's, it's very close to, to Kingsford Smith Airport, the main Sydney airport, into which probably most international visitors fly when they, when they land in Australia. The lakes, um, Bonnie Doon, the Australian, what else is close to the airport? A lot of them are. Yeah, East Lake. Although that's probably not, you know, that, that that's a cut price option if you're in Sydney. A very good, very good course on great land in between the lakes and Bonnie Doon. But yeah, there's a there's a a sand belt in its own right, I guess, in Sydney uh, that straddles just just next to the airport. And the Aussie is on some great terrain, on some wonderful soil, and it's you know, it's it's Florida golf. Yeah. Anyway, that's enough of, enough of a drive-by on them. Uh, <laughs> I didn't expect us to be talking about the Australian on this podcast at all, but if we were going to talk about it, it was always going to be in that uh, in that vein. And it's funny because it's like the value for money, the value for money is obviously such a massive consideration on a golf trip, and that's another thing that it, it doesn't have in its favour. But, yeah, let's move on from the Aussie. Um, definitely one of the points we wanted to touch on um, in this discussion was value for those people who are traveling from overseas and trying to fit a lot of golf into a trip um, or, or making decisions on what courses they see and don't see. And that'll, I think that'll be a, a topic that we come back to in subsequent episodes as we focus on 
specific courses and particular regions around the country. We had discussed amongst ourselves in the in the planning um, that the the fee to come and play Royal Melbourne was in many regards value for money, and non golfers might not understand what we mean by that if they just look at the line item on our credit cards when we get back. But the, the cost involved with going to these courses in Australia at the at the elite end of golf in this country is, in global terms, really really good value. Well, particularly um, RM, like RM West is one of the ten best golf courses on the face of the planet, you know. And and there's there's not that many of them that anybody who has the desire, the enthusiasm to play can just go and play, right? Certainly not the ones in the US. No, in 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 planning a trip to Australia, people can go online and contact RM. And they can do the same at Victoria. They can do the same at Kingston Heath. Um, they can organise a a trip as an as an overseas visitor, and i i would I would love to be able to do that at Cypress Point or Pine Valley or Shinnecock or National Golf Links, and we can't. So it it, it is it is great value in terms of its, its accessibility and and price in comparison to peer courses and peer experiences around the world. The other interesting thing, certainly thinking of guests who travel here from the UK or the US, their, their exchange rate, particularly at the moment, is remarkable. That makes, that makes a, a trip down to Australia really affordable. We were looking not long ago and realised that the, the pound is 1.7 Australian dollars and the greenbacks near one and a half. So the, the, the ticket price for everything down here, green fees included, is less than what a lot of travellers would initially think. So, Yeah, and that's even before you consider that. So like Barn Boogle Dunes and Lost Farm are 130 Australian dollars, I think, for 18 holes. You know, a Brit peels 40% off that, you know, 80 quid. You know, you can't play much golf in, in the UK of any architectural prominence for 80 quid. Um, and their all-day rate is really not much more at Barn Boogle, is it? The ability no. to go play that Boogle Run or the or the or Lost Farm in the other half of the day. So no, absolutely not. And when you consider that, you know, the UK has that accessibility that the US lacks, but you're parting with four hundred pounds. So the best part of eight hundred Australian to play Kings Barns, not much less to play. You know, Castle Stewart, like we're looking at modern courses that don't, you know, that don't have that that long history. You know, Turnbury, I think, might be five hundred pounds. So, really, you know, the value I think in Australia is, you know, and you drop down a tier and you go to Port Ferry, which to me, Port Ferry's the Ely of Australia. It's one of the most magic places. You touched on earlier the drive down the Great Ocean Road past the Twelve Apostles. Um, is one of the most beautiful coastal drives in the world. And you arrive at Port Ferry after three hours or so in the car and they charge you 50 bucks and tell you to go and play golf. And it's it's incredible little piece of Linksland in the middle of nowhere. Um, and you spend the weekend in Port Ferry and you're going to have from overseas, you know, an incredible experience. You know, you look at it, the Aussie courses that are on the world rankings list and you wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't see it there. If you look at even the Australian rankings lists and it's way too low on those, 
Um, it's one of the most special experiences I think you can have in golf. And there's that tier of Australian golf that, you know, you mentioned Newcastle before, you know, two hours north of Sydney, but it's it's really its own little genre of country golf. Australian country golf has something that even our big clubs in the city don't have in terms of that atmosphere. Often these clubs, even a highly ranked one like Newcastle, it gets by a lot on volunteer effort and enthusiasm to make sure they keep the club alive in their town. And you can really experience that when you go there. You can feel that this is a place that there's a lot of people putting in a lot of love to keep it going. Um, and that's not that's not something that you find a lot in courses that are also, you know, worth travelling halfway around the world and then driving two hours up a motorway to get to. You know, and yeah, of, of great quality and and of significant architectural merit too. That's, mm. that's and one it's, that it's actually, I mean, without without getting too far down the rabbit hole on on this first episode, but what I think is really fascinating. So um, Eric Appley was the Aussie architect who who was given the job of doing some work on New South Wales Golf Club after Mackenzie had built it, or well, he he designed it. It was built to his design. It was never bunkered. Eric Appley came in. Um, some, you know, 15 years later and was given responsibility for changing the course around a little bit, making it a bit more functional, bunkering it. And then he immediately was engaged to go and build Newcastle from scratch. And if you play at New South Wales and then you play at Newcastle, there's these similarities that are uncanny and that you don't see, you know, Mackenzie routed a lot of New South Wales over some really severe dunes and it's really wild and bold you didn't see golden age courses, you know, particularly when you look to the UK, they were built, the holes were built through the valleys of the dunes or along the ridges on top. Mackenzie just went, you know, like he was driving a monster truck, just went over everything. And you go to Newcastle and Appley's built this golf course that goes over the top of everything and through some wild pieces of land. And, you know, there's a guy who, was raised in Australia, knew all his golf based on the rudimentary golf that we had before Mackenzie came. And having seen Mackenzie do what he did at New South Wales, went and built something that, you know, otherwise would never have been built. And it's really, it's interesting to see those connections and understand how, and I mean, you're much more placed than I am to have, go in detail on this and maybe it's for a later episode, but what, what Australian golf might be or might not be if Mackenzie hadn't come down here in 1926 at Royal Melbourne's invitation. Yeah, there's all sorts of all sorts of what ifs associated with that trip. What if he stayed in Perth longer? He's the Otranto, his boat on which he travelled really only, I think it spent 24 hours in Perth and then he got back on and travelled via Adelaide down to Melbourne. But anyone even takes a cursory look north and south of Perth and WA at that coastline that's still largely untouched when you travel a reasonable distance north or south of the city and all you see is this amazing topography and sand and vegetation and there must be architects out there licking their chops wanting to get their hands on some of that. What what golf would look like in Melbourne if Mackenzie didn't spend his time here or if, if RM got Colt instead of Mackenzie um god who knows i hope it would still be good <laughs> um, i think it would still be good but certainly there's a flavor to it that god generations have enjoyed since and we enjoy to this day and it's 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 
yeah, that two month trip. What did what did what title did Doak use in the McKenzie biography? Two months that changed a continent. Yeah. I think that's probably a fair description for the the impact that he had on the game here in Melbourne. Mm. Um, you were talking about Appley. He designed other courses apart from New South Wales and Newcastle. He designed a course in Orange. Yeah, he designed Nutri League. I've um, never been there. I've wanted to go there and I've never been there. Well, I mean, the central west of New South Wales, again, it's... So if you came down here uh, and you were travelling and you didn't have golf clubs, there's incredible wineries and food and scenery around that part of New South Wales. What there isn't is anything that should yield a good golf course. Uh, and okay. so Dunstree League, you know, I, I, I don't want people... You know, driving all that way out of their way, thinking that they're gonna they're gonna find sand hills. Um, you know, out in the middle of Australia, like the Nebraska of Australia, but it's a really good golf course, and I think Appley certainly, obviously, learnt an incredible amount from Mackenzie, just like you know Alec Russell um, did in Melbourne, and I guess that's that's almost the critical thing. Maybe was not even what Mackenzie did himself while he came down here. It was seemingly his ability to leave clear instructions and to teach people, you know, he he only saw was at the fifth West at Royal Melbourne built, but he left Morecambe and Russell clear enough instructions and was skilled enough at explaining what he wanted the place to look like that there's 35 other holes that they're responsible for. And, you know, if you send someone out, to tell you the one hole that Mackenzie personally supervised construction of, people would be guessing. Yeah. It's amazing to think that he only ever saw that one. I often think of it on that tee and think, oh, he stood here and looked at this and wonder what he would have thought of some of the others had he seen them in finished form. But anyway. Yeah. We, we are, we're getting further down the rabbit hole than we probably factored for the pilot. So this is probably our... Probably our uh, our moment to excuse ourselves before we before we drone on. But Maddie, what it has got me this episode is really excited to go through all of this detail with you, um, hear a bit more about all these places that we think people should travel to. Uh, really looking forward to doing it, mate. So I'm glad we finally hit record. Likewise, I'm um, looking forward to discussing some great courses, courses we love, courses we're really passionate about, little trips within the country that we've taken several times amongst ourselves and and sharing some of those experiences with the listener that it will it will be it'll it'll be great stuff i'm sure and there's actually so there's a couple of courses i still haven't seen that i should have and us doing this is gonna get me on a plane and go and see them uh because i think it would be a little bit embarrassing if i had to just you know plead the fifth that's a that's a welcome byproduct of this pleased to hear it all right no worries mate good to chat we'll talk to you soon will do thanks scott